Good morning and welcome to The Breakdown with Brooks and Bronder on K-12 Leaders. We're happy to have you here. Good morning, Susie Brooks. Good morning, Mr. Bronder. So happy to be here. Yeah, we are just talking about how excited this, how exciting this is and the relationship between being nervous and being excited. Uh, this is our inaugural um, broadcast of this podcast where we break down the leading headlines in education daily uh, so you can have access to them in your car or during your commute uh, and uh, follow up on whatever is interesting to you on k12leaders.com slash breakdown. Starting off this morning, Susie Brooks, what are you seeing in the headlines that's catching your eye? Well, there were quite a few of them. Um, I've seen quite a few that have been putting out by that have been put out by the Learning Network. Um, for one of them, it said, "If you had a billion dollars to give away, what charity would you support? Um, what causes do you support? And with either your money or your time and your efforts, so you can check that one out and maybe have some input as to what you would do with your billion dollars." Um, but one that I wanted to focus on today actually made me giggle when I first saw it, because sometimes we'll see some articles pop into our feed that I think at first just don't fit. And this was one of them. And it said, design your party. And I thought, why is this one here? But I went ahead and clicked on it. And it's actually an, an um, activity that you can go through with your students. It's design your political party, because, of course, it's election time in the country. And why not carry out a small scale election in your school so you can have fun with your classmates making your own political party? It has you dividing up yourself into teams with equal numbers of participants and allotting tasks to each member. You can set time for each activity before starting, and it has you coming up with symbols and slogans and a manifesto, and you can prepare a brief presentation and show your party symbol and your slogan and your manifesto and articulate the principles and the goals that you set forth for your party that set you apart from the others. And then each student can cast votes and the party with the most votes will be declared the winner of the class-wide election. I think it's a great little activity that can be done during this time where the news is just plastered with news about elections. So um, yeah, go ahead and design your own party. Don't be tricked by what you see in our newsfeed. Go ahead, Michael, what's up with you? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and there are so many, uh, so many resources like that, Susie, that come across on a daily basis. And I'm really glad that we're doing this to give educators a chance to, to hear about some of these great activities that they might scan over if they have a minute to read the news um, or, uh, you know, and potentially miss some uh, good ideas like that. Yeah. Right. So there are a couple of other headlines. Uh, there are some uh, insights from Black education leaders in Kalamazoo, Michigan, that was published by Matt Zalaznik on district administration. You can find that link on k12leaders.com slash breakdown. Um, in New York, they're anticipating some uh, rural, some uh, budget cuts and uh, rural schools are uh, looking to that event uh, with some dread. And that is an article in the New York Times, again, shared with us by district administration. Uh, and then there's some perspectives from uh, third grade students in North Texas on what happens uh, now that they're facing a school closing. And again, you can find that link on k12leaders.com slash the breakdown. Um, you know, and following up though, Susie, you know, we, you had mentioned, you know, these resources that become available um, that 
you know, really give educators a chance to bring some some current events into their classroom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the resources that we cite a lot here is from the Learning Network at the New York Times. And they posted something a week or two back, uh, soliciting feedback from students on the um, on the very tragic story of Jennifer Crumbly and the mass shooting that her son was convicted of um, executing uh, in their school up in Michigan. Yes. Um, and in many cases, you know, follow through is everything. So while the Learning Network asked those questions, today they actually published the responses. And so I'm going to read through some highlights from that. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not a very uplifting story, but I think it's critical to, you know, folks who work in schools and folks who are interested in their children. So uh, this again from the New York Times, the Learning Network, you can find the link on the breakdown at k12leaders.com. And what students are saying about parents' responsibility for the harmful actions of their children. Uh, I think that's an interestingly phrased question to begin with. Uh, and it continues, a jury convicted a mother for a mass shooting carried out by her child. We asked students if they thought the verdict was an important precedent or a dangerous one. On February, 10, on February 6th, Jennifer Crumbly was convicted on four counts of involuntary manslaughter, one for each student her son killed in Michigan's deadliest school shooting. The case is the most high-profile example of prosecutors seeking to hold parents responsible for violent crimes committed by their children. The guilty verdict is likely to ripple across the country's legal landscape as prosecutors find themselves weighing a new way to seek justice in mass shootings. We asked teenagers what they thought. Should parents ever be held responsible for the harmful actions of their children? And if so, under what circumstances? Many students disagreed with the verdict, arguing that teenagers are ultimately responsible for their own actions and that it's unfair to expect parents to know what their kids are thinking, feeling, or planning to do. However, many others supported the conviction, arguing that under certain circumstances, parents should be held responsible for their children's crimes, given the large role they play in shaping a child's personality and behavior. Read their arguments below. And I will leave a lot of these details uh, for you to uh, read on your own if this is interesting to you. There are a number of quotes directly from students that are all vetted by the New York Times and the Learning Network, but here are the uh, highlights. Um, many students argued that while it's the parent's job to teach right from wrong, ultimately they aren't responsible for their children's behavior. Uh, that was one of the one of the uh, buckets that these responses fell into. Mm-hmm. Um, those students also pointed out that they that parents can't know everything their children are going through, nor can they predict the future. Uh, Olivia um, responded, "When I initially heard about this case, I was dumbfounded. Teenagers are very good at hiding their emotions and putting on a mask to please their parents." Jennifer Crumbly could have never known what her son was truly going through. She could have never predicted that her son was going to be the cause of such a horrible incident. Parents that are engaged and involved in their children's lives in a positive aspect are not responsible for the possible negative way in which their children might react. Um, That's just one uh, one of the responses. One other student argued that the case reveals a bias against mothers 
and that the real perpetrator is the gun industry and the politicians who allow it to have unchecked influence. Um, and they write that Jennifer and James Crumbly bear the responsibility for buying their son a firearm and failing to secure it properly, and they are guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Um, this continues. Um, other students argued that under cer certain circumstances, parents should be held responsible for the terrible crimes their children commit. Uh, through numerous studies, writes Cohen, uh, it has been established that the most important factor in the development of a child is the parents and family members. It affects the success, values, mental health, and nearly every other aspect of the child's life. The parents are responsible. Um, additional findings or opinions that some students argue that parents have a responsibility to take a child's signs of emotional distress seriously. And that uh, others said that they said that the, the conviction in this case could serve as a wake-up call for other families who have a teenager in distress. Um, these are some of these are hard to read, um, mm. but I think that the the variety of responses that the Learning Network has picked up um, through their their survey is worthwhile, and I would encourage you to. Either find that on the New York Times itself, or you can find the link at k12leaders.com slash the breakdown. Uh, that was heavy stuff. Um, Susie, uh, what are you yeah. seeing might lift our spirits a little bit? I know. No kidding. I think that it's great that the Learning Network gives um, students a venue to be able to share their opinions. Um, it gives them a national stage to be able to, you know, voice what it is that they're thinking and feeling. And clearly there's going to be a wide range of reactions about what is going on. And I, I think that there's still one more trial to come. So I'm sure that they'll they'll continue to be able to share what they're thinking and feeling. And I can I can understand how hard that is to read. Um, let's see. I had been looking to share. um Oh, talking about the learning network. Yeah, their um their word of the day was throng this week. <laughs> it's appeared in 109 articles in the New York Times in the past year. And they're always looking for us to use it in a sentence. I love that they include that. But I was looking at an article that came out of eSchool News on how to help students build critical success skills. And so I thought I'd share a little bit of that this morning. It says there's a growing demand for specific success skills and which are associated with higher earnings, adaptability and career progression. And who can't use a little bit more of that? Um, this article was originally published by SREB and it is reposted with permission. Communication, teamwork and problem solving are clear priorities among success skills that employers seek according to a new report by the Southern Regional Education Board. The skills employers demand an analysis of research summarizes 10 years of studies from 2013 to 2023 and analyzes job postings in the 16 SREB states. The report is designated, excuse me, designed to help educators and policymakers as they integrate these skills into what students learn in K-12, dual enrollment and post-secondary education. SREB's dual enrollment initiative includes a focus on skills for careers of the future. Success skills, sometimes called soft, durable, non-technical, or employability skills, are personal qualities that advance careers and increase productivity. 
At a time when we're all learning how AI can do routine tasks, these are the qualities that set humans apart from machines, said SREB President Stephen L. Pruitt. The most sought-after success skills across industries were remarkably consistent in academic and business studies. Communication, oral and written, teamwork and collaboration, and problem-solving and critical thinking. Supervision and management also emerged as a top skill in healthcare and STEM industries, where SREB predicts the largest workforce gaps in Southern states. There's growing demand for these success skills, which are associated with higher earnings, adaptability, career progression, resilience, and productivity, said Courtney Ledner, SREB research analyst and author of this study. For education and policymakers, Building a plan to change instruction and integrate these skills into all programs of study is an important step, said Dale Winkler, SREB Senior Vice President for School Improvement. SREB is committed to helping states and schools tailor strategies for their local areas. Many SREB states are working to incorporate success skills into what students learn from K-12 through post-secondary education. In addition to core standards, research success suggests these strategies. Tailor success skills to high demand industries in your state or community by examining local job data. Develop a cohesive approach across K-12, two-year and four-year colleges. Use widely recognized credentials with clear criteria from reputable organizations. Credentializing... <laughs> Credentialing can show employers, this is a tricky one for me, that high school or college students have passed skills assessments, offer project-based and work-based learning experiences. Work-based learning allows students to learn to function in the workplace through mentoring, internships, apprenticeships, or on-the-go training. It can begin in earlier grades with guest speakers, workplace tours, and job shadowing. Project-based learning, where students learn through practice and feedback on authentic, concrete projects, may be particularly effective in developing collaboration, adaptability, and management skills. Two of my favorite ways to teach and learn in school are work-based and project-based learning. So love being able to share about those. Um, so there we go. If you want to read more about that, you can check it out on k12leaders.com slash breakdown, and you'll find it right there in our list of articles. Michael, were there more that you've seen this morning? Yeah, no, that's interesting. And that plays uh, very well, Susie, into another article that caught my eye. Uh, this one by Hiring Lab, which is a division of Indeed. We know Indeed is the job board, uh, but they uh, but they have they do a lot of research on their own. Uh, and this uh, this like meshes very easily with that story from the Southern Regional uh, Education Board, uh, Susie. And this yeah. is that educational requirements seem to be disappearing from job postings. Uh, amid growing support for skills-first hiring practices, employers are becoming less likely to require formal education credentials for jobs. This is by Corey Stahl on HiringLab.org. You can find the link on k12leaders.com slash breakdown. Um, and I'll go through some of the key points here. There are a lot of details, a lot of graphs in this article. Uh, if you're interested in workforce development, um, I would suggest that you check this out. 
Uh, but here are the highlights. So uh, a majority of 50 majority that is 52% of US job postings on Indeed did not mention any formal education requirements as of January 2024. That's up 48 that's up from 48% at the same time in 2019. The share of US job postings requiring at least a college college degree fell from 20.4% to 17.8% in the last five years, opening doors for the 64% of U.S. adults without a bachelor's degree. Formal educational requirements are declining at nearly every sector, and mentions of college degrees have fallen since 2019 in 87% of occupational groups analyzed by Indeed. These are some pretty striking numbers. Yeah. Employers are losing their formal education requirements as the labor market remains tight and attitudes towards skills-first hiring practices change. Those same employers seem more willing to consider candidates who can demonstrate the required skills without necessarily having a degree. Fewer than one in five, 17.8%, of U.S. job postings on Indeed required a four-year degree or more in January 2024, and a majority did not include any educational requirements at all. Um, formal educational requirements are unlikely to disappear entirely from job postings, especially in areas like healthcare and engineering that require a good deal of post-secondary knowledge and skills. However, a shrinking pool of job postings requiring applicants to first hold a formal degree as an employment condition represents a majority opportunity for roughly two-thirds of, of Americans without four-year degrees. Um, and there is a lot of data to back up these claims. They cite a number of different sources and break things down uh, in a very clear way um, that highlight some of those statements and uh, conclude that while these uh, requirements, educational requirements, are unlikely to vanish from job postings. Growing support for skills-first hiring approaches is a clear sign for workers to invest in skills now, regardless of their education level. In other words, even college-educated workers may have to think about reskilling more as they go forward. For employers, these trends suggest the need to reflect on current hiring re requirements by implementing skills-first hiring practices where it makes sense. Um, so, uh, and then they go on about the methodology. So this is a pretty, uh, pretty solid article. If you're interested in workforce development, um, career readiness, uh, I'd suggest you check this out on the hiring lab. Uh, you can find that link at k12leaders.com slash breakdown. And as always, we would love to hear your thoughts, how this is affecting you, the way you teach, how your students think about their future. And uh, that's what K-12 Leaders is all about, creating a, uh, a space for those kind of conversations. Back to you, Susie. Absolutely. That one made me think a lot about competency-based um, degrees also. Just a lot of related thoughts there. I'll have to run to K-12 Leaders and share my thoughts on that one. Um, that, that was great, share. Thank you for doing that. I, I, those were all the long ones that I wanted to share, but there's one that I might should, I might check out later after we're offline. And that was one that was shared on the Dallas morning news 
um, put out through district administration and it's called this North Texas school may close. What does that feel like for a third grader? As a former third grade teacher, that one stood right out to me. Decisions about school closures are steeped in nuances about stagnant state funding formulas, slowed birth rate projections, and low building utilization. But for kids like Coraline, these complicated numbers aren't what matters. If that doesn't grab your attention, I don't know what will, but I would certainly want to read more about that. And you can check it out too if you head to k12leaders.com slash breakdown. Yeah, we certainly know how personally uh, third graders take everything, and uh, and I can just imagine, I can just imagine what you know what those kids are going through. Yeah. And then uh, one other story that uh, I won't dive into, but there is a good news story from D.C. where there's a win-win um, uh, in uh, around high impact tutoring boosting attendance. And uh, just the, the quick takeaway there is that um, after the implementation of high quality tutoring programs, uh, they've not only seen improved performance and speed in uh, reading and math, but they've also reduced absenteeism. So they cite that of the students who had more than 30 days absence um, last year, they've seen an improvement um, a drop of five days, which may seem small, but it's pretty significant and it seems to be playing out in the numbers. So you can find that story by Linda Jacobson from the 74 on k12leaders.com slash breakdown. And I think Susie, that about wraps it up for this initial, uh, podcast. So nice doing this with you. Very enjoyable and lots to, lots to check out. I have more to read now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, tune in again on Monday for an uh, update from what we hear over the weekend. I expect it's going to be a big news day. Uh, have a great day at school, everybody. All right.